Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. When it comes to applications in Colossians, as he does in so many of his letters, it's not suddenly a switch to, here's the things you need to do to make God happy with you. It's God has already delighted in you, saved you, made you holy. Now here's how you should live in reflection of that truth of who he's made you to be. And so he's been talking about that. It's interesting though, as we were looking at Colossians 3, he talks about so many things which are, which are applications that can only be fulfilled in community. He talks about bearing with one another. He talks about being patient. He talks about uh, not holding burdens against each other. He talks about being honest with each other. So these are things that only make sense in a sort of community. And it is true that so much of Paul's letters have to do with how we apply the gospel as a a community. And this is unusual for us. It's easy for us to miss because our culture is so individualistic. We're so used to seeing everything's in an individual manner. And it's true that there, is, there, is, there are some things deeply personal and individual about the gospel. In other words, you don't, you don't need anybody else except Christ to mediate between you and God. That is very personal and it's very true. You get to make that decision on a very personal level. Nobody can sort of have that faith for you. But even with that being the case, so much of what we see in scripture is telling us how to live as a community and how we encourage one another in our faith, and how we move together, and how we grow together, and how discipleship is something that happens in a communal manner. And so tonight, he's going to take what he's been talking about, and he's going to get even more specific. And he's going to do something that he does actually in in several of his letters to churches. He's going to talk about how eternal things, how thinking eternally, how having an eternal perspective should affect our mundane daily interactions. How should it affect our work? How should it affect our, our marriages? How should it affect our families? How should it affect the way we interact with other people? And he's going to now take those ideas, those big eternal questions and say, that doesn't mean that now you discard everybody. It means that this should affect the way that you, you behave in the really day-to-day mundane things. Just to remind you, even last week where we left off, the very last verse we read last week says, in everything... Uh, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus, by the way, simply means by the authority of. To do something in somebody's name, like if you do something in the name of the king, it means you're doing it by the authority of the king. And so that's what Paul is saying is everything in your life, whatever you do, whatever you speak, whatever is coming out of you, (laughs) whatever you're engaged in, Do it under the authority of Jesus. See, what's interesting is we have a tendency to separate things into sacred and secular based upon the activity itself. But Paul wants to separate sacred and secular based upon who you're doing it for and whose authority it's under. So the things you do are sacred if they're under the authority of the divine uh, ruler of the universe. And they're sacred if they're not. So the exact same sequences, exact same circumstances, you can go to church or not go to church. One, you can go to church in a very secular manner. Or you can go to church and it can be sacred. You can go to work at your so-called secular job and that can be sacred. And so he starts in this leading into where we're going to go today. He says, whatever it is you're doing, whatever the most mundane activities you're doing, having an eternal perspective, making this the year of eternal things, means beginning to recognize that every little thing you do, every mundane aspect of your life 
can be done under the authority of Jesus. And that's really the essence of discipleship, is learning to help each other remember and encourage each other to do everything under the authority of Jesus. Not just to do religious things under the authority of Jesus. Not just to be under the authority of Jesus when you sit in these particular bubblegum grape chairs. But to be under the authority of Jesus when you're sitting in your conference chair at work. Or when you're sitting in your dining room chair at home. Or when you're sitting in a theater chair watching a movie. Now, there are a few things that you could probably argue you could never do under the authority of Jesus, right? There are some things that you can just imagine, you know, Jesus would just say, yeah, no. <laughs> but I want to stress that those are actually, comparatively speaking, those are few and far between. We, the vast majority of everything we do in our lives is sacred or secular based not upon the activity itself, but upon our attitude and our heart. And are we learning how to do all things under the authority of Jesus. He does go on to say, he reiterates something that we left off with uh, last week, which is that doing all things under the authority of Jesus means, among other things, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If your life is lived under the authority of Jesus, it means that you will have a grateful life because you will recognize that everything that happens, everything you have, all good gifts, as scripture says, are granted to you by the grace of God. So if you have a job that you hate, there should be some gratitude that you have a job. <laughs> right? If you have a family that sometimes is a struggle, you should be grateful for the family you have. If you, if you breathe a breath and speak a word and do an action, you can do it under the authority of Jesus with the gratitude that you have a life to live, that you have another, another step to take. And so there is something about this authority and this gratitude that all comes together. Obviously, if our lives are just our lives and we're in charge of them, there's nobody to be grateful to except ourselves, I suppose. But if all things are under the authority of Jesus, then we should do all things in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he takes this question and he begins to ask us then, how does this thinking, how does thinking eternally, how does doing all things in the authority of Jesus, how does that affect our mundane daily interactions? The most basic, boring, happens every day, temporal in the moment, interactions, how are those affected if we're also being eternal in our thoughts? That's the question we're going to explore. That's the passages we're going to look at tonight. So, in fact, there's a couple of things, as you can tell from my prayer, there's context. There's personal context that we all bring to the passages we're going to read. Very few people come to these passages without some context. If you've been in a church at all, there's some context. But even if you haven't, our culture is wrestling with some of these questions because some of these questions are, are interactions between husbands and wives and are there appropriate roles or are there not appropriate roles and, and, and there's words that we, we react to one way or the other, words like submission. What does that mean? Does that have a place? What are we supposed to do with that? So before we jump into those, I want you to think about a few things just to frame it a little bit because I know that we don't enter it with no framework, right? So I want to encourage you to perhaps have a little bit different framework. And here's a couple of things I want you to think about. Number one, I want you to think about the truth that relationships, human interactions throughout history have revealed themselves to be difficult, troubled, and often abusive. Agreed? <laughs> it's just, it's part of the fall, right? There are groups of people that oppress other groups of people. 
And there are individuals that abuse other individuals. And relationships throughout history are, are you know, the, the really good ones are special and rare. And usually there's just a long litany of us not really relating well to one another. And that culturally that happens. So that you have huge swaths of time and historical periods where a group of people will treat another group of people as subhuman simply because the color of their skin is different. Or they will treat a different group of people subhuman because they happen to be in a different class of wealth. And so we have all these areas where people and groups, they live troubled and cultures are troubled. And there's cultural, there's, there's, there's limitations even on how people can relate to each other because they live within a certain cultural restriction. And what I want you to think about and realize and just acknowledge is the Bible doesn't ignore this. The Bible doesn't pretend this isn't true. God is very aware of the failings of, of men. And here men, I mean mankind. God is very aware of the failings and the, the oppression that exists. He speaks of it often in scripture. The prophets speak of it often. The Levitical law speaks of it. And the New Testament speaks of it. So don't think that the Bible is naive to the ways of people and the cultural issues that exist and the problems that are there. And, but here's what's interesting is that as you read through scripture, what you see is that God is willing to both recognize the difficulties that we have living in these limited troubled cultures and that he also wants to provide guidance for us to, in how to move beyond the failures, to achieve more than our cultures give us. But God is smart enough to tell us how to do that in ways that are attainable within the culture in which we live. In other words, God can't simply come to us at a given moment and say, what I want you to do tomorrow is turn everything upside down that you've learned your whole life, and suddenly the culture will be a utopia. It doesn't happen that way. So God says, within the culture you're in, with the limitations you face, here's some things I want you to do that will elevate you beyond where the culture is. And let me give you a couple of examples. So in the Old Testament, in the Levitical law, so we go all the way back the Levitical law. There's some interesting laws. There's a lot of interesting laws. Some of them are very peculiar. We could have a lot of discussion about some of them and why they exist. But there's one set of laws which is kind of peculiar to us, but I think we can understand a little better if we see God's desire to, ex to elevate us above the culture, but understand the framework we're stuck in and help us to do both at once. One of the laws in the Old Testament says that if a woman marries somebody and he dies and she becomes a widow, that the brother of the husband that died should now marry the widow and take care of her. Well, this is peculiar. This would be weird in our culture. Like if we brought that forward and said, that's now the law, that if you die, your brother has to marry your wife. There's a couple of issues with that that we would have right away. First of all, one thing that's very different from all culture in the time of the Levitical law is that there's a lot fewer young widows, right? At the time of Levitical law, men were dying a lot more frequently. And I mean, for lots of reasons. And they were dying a lot younger. And you ended up with widows who were 16 and 17 and 20. So that's different. We don't have that experience here. It's much less often that that happens. But the second thing that's weird about it is it sounds, it could sound to us from our cultural perspective demeaning to say, why can't the woman just take care of herself? You're saying that a woman needs a husband in order to survive. Well, that's all well and good for you to say that from your vantage point, but it is the historical reality that yes, a woman needed a man to survive. Not because she was inferior, but because the culture gave her no other options. 
at the time that the women lived, if their husband died, they couldn't go get a job. There wasn't a place for them to go. Not only that, but the chance of getting remarried was a lot slimmer than it is today. Unfairly, the culture regarded a woman who'd already been married as sort of a used product. Is that the way we should think of women? No, of course not. But God knew that that's the culture into which everybody lived at that moment. Not just the Jews, but all cultures, pretty much. Pretty much. And so God knew that how are we going to protect, the, what are we going to do for these women? I can't simply say to them, women are of equal value, therefore just let the woman go take care of herself because the woman won't be able to because the culture doesn't have the means for her to do it. So within the framework that's there, God says, but what I do want people to do, what I do want my people to know is that women are of value and we should not leave them and abandon them because they're regarded by used product by the rest of the world. What we should do is make sure that within the framework that you guys have allowed, we take care of those women. And the way we do that is we make sure that there's somebody who's obligated to marry them, regardless of the fact that they've been married before. So you can see that within that culture, it doesn't mean God is saying this is the right way to think of women, but he is saying, let's elevate the place of women. Let's show that they have value. Let's treat them as human beings and let's provide for them under the framework that we've got. Well, you move forward to the New Testament, and guess what? That law, that Jewish law about marrying your, your brother's widow, it's ignored. It seems to be gone. But it's because it's no longer as relevant. And what does happen in the New Testament is a new thing happens. The church suddenly creates this, this office, this official position for widows. If you read a lot of Paul's letters and what he talks about what widows should do, he appears to be talking about a kind of a position that the church gives them. That when a woman becomes a widow, she, she immediately is given this place within the church that has respect and position and purpose and provision and protection. And that is how they take care of it in the New Testament. It's different than the way they do it in the old, but the principles are the same. We're still recognizing the value of women, that they deserve not to be abandoned. We elevate them from their marginalized position and actually give them a position of respect and we make sure that they aren't lost in the shuffle. Today, the impetus to take care of widows and orphans is still upon us. But the way we would do it perhaps would be entirely different. Why? Because women can get a job, right? Because there's nothing that prevents them. I mean, you can argue whether it's harder, and if it is, maybe the church should help. But in general, there's nothing that prevents them from, from being able to take care of themselves. And we can, we, can, we can honor that. We can help with that. We can do what we need. There may be other ways the church can help and provide. My point is, in all of these situations, God looks at the culture that we live in, recognizes the limitations in the framework, seeks to elevate us above the problems of that, and yet does it in ways that are attainable to us within the culture we're in. I know that was a lot of words. Are you still with me? Okay. Second thing. I want you to think about before we jump into these passages is that there's disagreement in the church on what these passages mean. And it's okay to acknowledge that. Specifically, there's disagreement in the church on the idea of women submitting to their husbands. There's disagreement in the culture on the idea of women submitting to their husbands. There's a lot of reasonable questions about what submission even means. What does that word mean? What did it mean to Paul? What did it mean to the women at the time? How should it be applied? It's not to say we simply discard the scripture. But it is to say there is legitimate questions and disagreement among the church right now about how all that fits. 
And that's okay. And I want you to know that within our church, within Focus, there are people on all sides of this issue. If I don't really care. Labels are helpful sometimes, but only if they mean anything to you. So if these labels don't mean anything to you, just forget them the second I say them. But you may hear the terms complementarianism and egalitarian. And what I want to say is we've got complementarian marriages and egalitarian marriages in this church, and it's completely okay. We do not consider that to be a disruptor of unity. We do not consider that to be heresy or a problem. We consider that to be faithful people trying to sort out what God's plan is in their own marriages, and we want to give them room and authority to make those decisions. So that's, I just want you to know that. That's okay. Number two, in regards to this, there is across the history of the church a significant level of abuse in which the idea of submission has been used as the weapon to make that happen. And we can't ignore that that's true as well. Even though I tend to lean complementarian, which is what has been used for abuse, I have to acknowledge as I say that, that we live at a time in a culture where there is the recognition that there has been a significant amount of men empowering themselves using these scriptural terms, I suspect not in ways that God intended them to be used. But as, we, as, we, as I read through this, I, it's important that you know that no abuse under any rationalization is acceptable in our church. And that at no point are the roles that are given by God for husbands and wives, if there are roles, at no point is God's intent that it's there for the empowerment of men and the disempowerment of women. And that is not an acceptable position. So we can call out that abuse without sacrificing the convictions of those who do believe in the, in the roles between men and women. Sometimes people who believe that their roles between men and women are afraid to call out abuse because they think it negates their position. And I'm telling you, that's not the case. All right. I mean, if it does, then your position's wrong, and we should start with that. <laughs> okay. Number three. As you can no doubt tell by this time, by the fact that I've now given you four caveats before we even get into this text, I am myself currently wrestling with what these verses mean. I'm not sure I know. I used to know. It's weird how you get dumber as you get older. <laughs> but that is what's happened to me. I remember Billy Graham, somebody asked him, uh, 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace asked Billy Graham, he's, he, Billy Graham was much older, and he said, when you were younger, you were very political, you haven't been as political, you know, in these days, this was probably maybe a decade before he actually died. And he said to him, is, you know, would you say that you're less certain about things than you used to be. And Billy Graham looked him in the eyes and said, the truth is, Mike, he said, I am less certain about absolutely everything with the exception of Christ crucified and risen again on my behalf. And I think it's not a surprise that a man like Billy Graham, in his maturity, that's the conclusion he comes to. <laughs> that he recognizes nothing else is quite as certain or important. But that he still believes. So I'm wrestling with what the text of Scripture says and what the best response in our culture is, right? What is it Paul is saying? Is he reflecting limitations that exist in our culture? And maybe we're past those limitations now and we should move on to something else. Or is there something deeper than that? I don't know the answer to that. And it's interesting for a pastor to stand up and say, we're going to go over some passages and I'm going to tell you that at moments there will be uncertainty from me about what this means. A lot of churches, that's considered, you just don't do that. But I actually want you to know I'm doing that. And I've gone into all this because what I want you to understand is this. I want you to be able to learn how to respond to the authority of scripture in the midst of culture. 
I want you to learn how to read scripture and apply it to your lives and disciple each other and grow in your obedience to Jesus to do all things in the authority of Jesus and to do it through an understanding of what scripture says. But I want you to understand that when you do that, there are two extremely lazy ways. Hermeneutics is the study of applying scripture, of understanding it. And there are, there are two extremely lazy hermeneutics that are extremely popular, and I want you to avoid both of them, and I can say them very simply. The first one is, you look at the culture, you look at the scripture, you see the tension between them, and you dismiss the scripture. That's one lazy hermeneutics. You say any time that the scripture doesn't agree with what culture says is true, it must just be that scripture is outdated, and I can ignore it, and all I have to do is follow the scripture that agrees with the culture I'm in. You can probably see the problems with that right off the bat. One of the big problems is, how can God elevate us in our culture if we refuse to accept any time he says something different than the culture we're in? He can't. So that's lazy. You're not allowed to do that. I mean, you're allowed to do that. I'm not going to come, you know, put you in church prison if you don't, but I'm just telling you that's not a great idea. Second lazy hermeneutics, though, is to look at the tension between Scripture, to look at the, the tension between Scripture and culture, and then dismiss the culture and say that is irrelevant and doesn't mean anything, and I'll just go with what I've always understood here. Because that also doesn't give you a chance to explore the, really, the real depth of how this actually applies. I think the best hermeneutics, however you describe it, however you go about it, it always comes down to embracing the tension that exists between your life and what Scripture says is true, and when they don't line up, you look them both in the face, and you say, I think both are true, now what do I do about that? <laughs> and I want you to see me doing that today. So as I go through these verses and you see some uncertainty, I want you to understand that's what I'm doing. I'm acknowledging the culture we live in, the abuse that's occurred, the questions about submission and the text. I'm not despising the authority of scripture. I still very much believe in it. But I want to see how it applies to the culture we live in. So you're, you're going to catch me mid-process and occasionally I'll say, but I don't know. All right? But along the way, I'll try to give you something to hang your hat on. Along the way, I'll try to give you some certainties that can help guide you as you also work through these questions. All right. Whew! That was the longest introduction, but I felt it was all important. So let's, let's jump right in. Paul starts right off with, for us, a thorny statement. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So here's the other thing we're going to do. We're going to read through this passage. I'm going to make a few comments as I go, but then we're going to go back and draw the major points out of it because I also don't want us to miss the big picture because part of our question is determining what is, what is it here that is the limitations of culture and what are the eternal perspectives that are always true? Maybe we don't have brothers marry widows, but God still wants to take care of widows, right? So maybe some of the specifics here do or don't apply, or maybe I'm not sure. But I do know the principles are still applied. So we're going to go through the comments a little bit, and then we'll hit, up, hit the, the big picture, and we'll pull it all together, and then we'll be done, just like that. Okay. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So this right off the bat, this is an issue in our culture, right? In that, first of all, the secular culture doesn't like the idea of women submitting. Submitting sounds like a really inferior term. It sounds like a term of inferiority. It's something that people are inferior do right? It also opens itself up if they've seen or experienced or even heard about examples of abuse. It certainly seems to open to that, right? What it, you know, if you have a husband who's not a nice guy and you're supposed to submit to him, that just sounds like a bad mix. And by the way, I agree with you. <laughs> I'm not ignoring that. That's true. 
So it's, all, it's already kind of a question, and you do kind of have to wrestle with what it means, but I think it's worth wrestling with it. Let me just make a few quick comments, and we'll move on. And like I said, we'll come back to the big picture in a second. First of all, the word submit is interesting. It's a military term. And at first, that might give you pause, because you might be like, oh, great. Now it's like the husband's a drill sergeant. No, that's not the point of using a military term. The reason he says wives submit to your husbands and uses a military term is because it's actually a really good parallel in this respect. A private is to submit to his general. But you know what we all know is true? A private can be smarter than his general. He can be stronger than his general. He can be braver than his general. He can be more moral than his general. He can be in absolutely every way you can think of better than his general. He could be a better soldier than his general. He could be better shot. He could be better trained. He could be literally in every way better than his general. And the military still says there's a reason to submit but it has nothing to do with your qualifications. And one thing that we can see from that is that Paul is not saying by using the term submission that women are inferior to their husbands. Any more than he would be saying that a private is inferior to his general. What he is saying is that there seems to be an order and there seems to be an efficiency and there seems to be a benefit within the task portion of a certain institution or community. There seems to be benefit to having somebody recognize an authority to which they submit. Again, what does that mean in this context? How does that work with husbands and wives? I don't know for sure. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that. But I just want you to understand one thing that Paul is absolutely not saying, and he chooses his words carefully, is he is not saying women are inferior to men. He also, by the way, says nothing in this passage about women submitting to men in general. I do want you to understand that. In the same way that Private John may submit to General Frank... <laughs> good old general frank i know i should have used last name so it would have sounded better but anyway <laughs> private private yeah, private john needs to submit to general frank but when they're both out of the army there's no obligation upon john to submit to frank and there's no obligation for all the johns in the world to submit to all the franks in the world the point is, there's nothing here. You, we could argue about other passages, and we're not going to do that tonight, and whether they say this, but this absolutely doesn't say anything about women submitting to men in any other context other than a wife with her husband. So whatever it means could just mean that. It doesn't talk about politics. It doesn't talk about business. It doesn't talk about the church. Now, again, if you want to go to other passages for that, we can have that discussion, but that's not what this says. Okay, let's press on. Uh, I want to be clear about the phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. I have, through the course of my growing up as a Christian, heard somebody preach that what that meant is that women should submit to husbands as if they were submitting to God. I don't know about you, but that sounds icky <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> that is a technical hermeneutical term. That sounds icky. That's icky hermeneutics. No, I don't, as a husband, I don't want that. That is way too much responsibility on me. But I just want to be clear, that's not what it says. It doesn't say do it as you would do it for the Lord. It says do it because of the Lord. And what, what you're going to see as we go through the rest of these, these exhortations he's going to give is that for every single one of them, he gives the motivation for the way they're supposed to interact being because you are under the authority of Jesus. Not because the person you're interacting with this way deserves it, <laughs> but because you're under the authority of Jesus. That's all it means. It doesn't mean 
I, I, there have even been churches where wives called their husbands Lord. Again, icky. Um, that's definitely not what this means. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I, I saw enough repulsion at that. I don't have to make that point anymore. Okay. He then goes on. He says, husbands, love your wives and not, do not be harsh with them. I want to make another point that I think is really relevant about this. This is awkward because we're reading a letter. And as you're reading a letter, you're getting to read what Paul is saying to other people. Do you see that? In other words, Paul writes something to the wives, but he's not writing that to the husbands. He didn't say to the husbands, your wives should submit to you. What did he say to the husbands? Love your wives and don't be harsh with them. It's like with our kids. When our kids come in and, and sometimes they'll be in a fight, right? And one of them will say, well, he hit me. And so we'll, we'll address the person that, that hit them and we'll say, don't hit your brother. And they'll say, well, but they were mean to me and they were picking on me and they were doing all this and that's not fair. And we'll say, we will talk with them. But it doesn't change what I'm telling you. <laughs> don't hit your brother. Then when they go away, we'll talk to their brother and say, don't pick on your brother. Don't torment him until he hits you. And they'll say, yeah, but he hit me. And we'll say, I'm not talking to them. And inevitably, when you have these kinds of discussions with your kids, at some point, one of the kids will say, it's not fair. How come it's all about me? And what you try to explain to them is, it's all about you because you can control you. And I'm only talking to you. And I think it's similar with husbands and wives. That when Paul is speaking to the wives, he's speaking to the wives. And what he's asking of them is voluntary. He's exhorting them, encouraging them. Whatever submission means, he's saying, this is how you should live. This is voluntary. At no point in any scripture, in any passage, anywhere, does Paul say to the husbands, you should make your wives submit. Ever. Now he says to the husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. They're like, wait, I think I overheard you say something about them submitting. And Paul's like, shut up, stop. <laughs> That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I'll tell you what, I'm a marriage counselor for 20 years. I don't do much of it anymore, but for 20 years I did a lot of marriage counseling. And I'll tell you this, just really simply, just, this is just empirical, practical experience. In any marriage where the husband is trying to get his wife to submit or where the wife is trying to get her husband to love her, it doesn't work. When the husband is manipulating, coercing, or forcing the wife to submit to him, it doesn't work because submission, by definition, is voluntary. Otherwise, that's not submission. That's surrender, which is different. And when the wife tries to manipulate, coerce, or force her husband to love her, that also doesn't work because love, by definition, is not manipulated, coerced, or forced. And it never feels like it, even if you think you got it. There's nothing in these passages that should be taken by the other side. In fact, a lot of our arguments about these passages would go away if every man would just commit to ignore the first verse and every woman would just commit to ignore the second verse and then we'll all be good. But that, of course, isn't going to happen. <laughs> he goes on and he says, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. I rarely hear people complain about this except children. But I want you to notice the motivation here too. Why should children obey their parents? Because parents have all the wisdom and do everything right? No, because it pleases the Lord. Even to the children, Paul gives them the same motivation he gives the wives. Now, the husbands, he didn't give that motivation here, but he does in other passages where he says, you should love your wives as Christ himself has loved you. 
That should be your motivation, laying your life down for them. Fathers, he says, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I think the idea here is, is, is don't exasperate them by asking them to do things that they can't do and then never acknowledging when they even try. It's, it's high expectations. It's no affection, no praise, no rewards. It's just like, do this, do this, do this, and you're always correcting them and you're never helping them because he says that will embitter them and discourage them. And we've probably all experienced a little bit of that from somebody, if not from our fathers. And as fathers, some of us have probably recognized we've done that now and then. Then he goes on. And if you thought the first verse was problematic about women submitting to your husbands, how about this one? Slaves. Obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as the reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, and anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And you read that and you think, whoa, why does Paul give so much space to telling the slaves they better behave themselves? Is Paul like secretly in favor of slavery? certainly didn't speak against it at this moment. No, I actually think this is the opposite. Remember, again, the people to whom he's speaking, do they have any choice? I mean, if he said to them, slaves, don't obey your masters, what would happen to them? Well, they'd die or they'd get beaten. I mean, this is not really like he's, he's endorsing slavery. He's recognizing the limitations of the culture in which they live. And he's trying to help them how to understand if you're a believer and you're a slave, how are you supposed to do this impossible situation of being a slave? And I think the reason he gives so much space here is not because he's reproving them. I think he's actually trying to encourage them. I think he's trying to give them meaning in an otherwise meaningless life. Because he says to them, obey your masters, which they have to do anyway. But then he says, but guess what? You're going to be subversive. If you really read these passages, they're subversive. Because he's saying you're going to obey them not because they're your masters. You're going to obey them because they're not your masters. <laughs> they think they're your masters. But guess what? You're not going to serve them. You're going to serve God. That's going to where your meaning is going to come from. You're not going to do it for them when they're watching you. You're going to do it for God. Now, we can talk about the fact that slavery at the moment that Paul is writing is not slavery like we think of in American history. It is different. It is gentler, if such a thing can be. It is more of a bond servant, is more of indentured servitude, but it's still slavery. So I don't want to go too far on that, but, but it is true that perhaps if these slaves were actually being beaten and killed, Paul might have had different exhortations here. But given the limitations that they live in now, what he says to them is, this is what you look for. What's meaningless about being a slave, among other things, is that none of your work brings you any fruit, right? So what does he tell them? You know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. He will do it. And then at the end when he says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism, it's very clear to me he's not saying to them, if you don't follow my instructions, you will be punished. It's clear to me he's saying, because, no, because they wouldn't have thought there was favoritism for them. Where do they think there's favoritism? For the master. Because in their culture, guess what? There is, right? In their culture, the master is special. But Paul is saying to them, he's trying to encourage them. 
You have, there's nothing you can do. He knows it. There's nothing you can do about the wrongs your master does to you. But what you can do is know that everyone who does wrong will be repaid for wrong because God doesn't think they're more special than you. There's no favoritism for God of them over you. Is this difficult to work with? Yes. But I think it is a good example of how God is trying to work within the culture, the failed, flawed, bad culture that they're living, and trying to help the slaves understand how they live and function as full-fledged, first-class Christians just like anybody else. And then he goes on to say this, masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. He tells the masters, don't think you're really the authority here. (laughs) You're not. So you know what? You should probably treat them the way you want God to treat you. And if the believers took that to heart, what would that do to the institution of slavery, do you suppose? I think we don't have to ask. I think we know. See, no, we'll get to that. Okay, so there's the, there they are. Now let's back up and let's take a look and give some principles that we see here, okay? Wrestling with how all these apply today, it's interesting. By the way, it is interesting that we, we have very little problem. Most, most pastors who speak about this passage, when they get to that passage about slaves and masters, you know what they do? No, they talk about employees and employers, which is a reasonable application, but... When they do that, are they not already acknowledging that the application Paul gave for that culture doesn't fit with us, so we have to find a different application for the principles that are there? Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're already acknowledging what I said before, that some things might not need, the application might not be specifically the same. And there's another thing that I've been thinking about as we go through the big picture here is I think in general, as as I have read through Paul's letters over and over and over and over over the years, and I, and I, just as a just as a as a voir dire, as, as a moment of, of of why you can at least give me a little bit of, of of hearing for a moment, not as a boast at all. I have read through the scriptures multiple times over the last thirty years, and I have studied the letters of Paul over and over and over because as a pastor, that's what people most like to hear about. Okay, so I've thought a lot about it doesn't mean I know the answers. In fact, it means I now realize I know less of the answers than I did before I read as much of it as I have. But one conclusion that I am coming to, something that's dawning on me over the last year or so, is that when Paul, Paul always starts with big picture, every one of his letters, he starts with big, big moments. This is the gospel. This is the grace of God. This is who you are in Christ. He always starts like that. He never starts with be nice to your, each other. Always starts with the big things. And then he moves into applications. And it occurs to me that there's a way that evangelicals have often read these these passages with these applications. And that is as if we are supposed to take the applications as if they were always intended to be universal. That in other words, when Paul wrote a letter to a church, he gave them an application which could have been handed to any other church and it would have been the same application. The problem is, if that's what Paul does, he's a little bit crazy because he contradicts himself. For example... At one moment, he says to one church, when your women prophesy in the assembly, make sure they wear head coverings. And at another moment, to another church, he says, I don't let women speak at all in the church. Now, how are you supposed to put those two together if they're universal applications for every church? How are even the two churches that Paul is writing to at that moment supposed to apply those? (laughs) They're not. One is supposed to apply the head coverings. One is supposed to apply the women be silent. And we're supposed to look at that and go, 
what is the principle that would make Paul say each of those things to different churches? And I started thinking, I think a lot of his applications are that way. That doesn't mean they're so case specific they have no relevance to us because he always draws them from the big eternal principles he's just finished talking about. But it does mean that they're perhaps more case by case and he intended them to be than we think they are. And if he were writing to us, he might say it differently. For example, would he talk about slaves and masters if he were writing to us? He's not that dumb. He wouldn't talk about that. Would he talk about employers and employees? Maybe. Maybe he would. But he would talk about that. <laughs> and it would apply to us in a way that it didn't apply to the Colossians. And maybe he talked to women about employers and employees in a way that would never have applied to the Colossians. Okay. But I think the importance is, again, I'm not saying this dismisses the authority of Scripture. It just means we have a little more to wrestle with to identify how do we apply it today? What does it mean for us? So here are some of those principles. Here are some of the things I think we can grab from this. We can argue about the fine tuning and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we're not gonna do it tonight. But here's some of the, the big picture things we can draw from what we see here. From this list of exhortations of how we should relate to each other, these orders, these structures, these hierarchies, and the ways we're supposed to respond to each other, I think there are some big principles we can draw. Number one, all our relationships are eternal. What Paul wants to say to them is that husband-wife relationship may sometimes feel like it doesn't mean much. It's not as important as what you do at the church. It's not as important as what happens over here when you're at the, you men, as you're at the gate with the other elders and you're discussing big theologies. You know, when I get off the phone with my brother, my wife always says to me, how are his kids? And I say, does he have kids? And she says, how's his wife? And I say, oh yeah, he's married. And I say, but I can tell you all about predestination and free will because we discussed that for an hour and a half. And, and so Paul is saying, you know, all those, those relationships that may not seem as important as these big theological moments, they're sacred. They're sacred. Even the slave-master relationship is sacred if it's done under the authority of Jesus. Now, again, that would affect very much the way the slave-master relationship operated to the point that it might disappear. We'll get to that in a second. But he's saying they're sacred, they're eternal. Our relationships are not just temporal. They're not just about getting through this day or getting past this moment or resolving this conflict. We're eternal people dealing with eternal people and the implications can be eternal. And so he wants us to think of that. All souls are of eternal worth. Every human being that we encounter goes beyond our stupid cultural distinctions that we make our caste systems, our class systems, our social systems, our favoritism. That if we really recognize what he's saying here, he's saying that every human being is eternally worthy, carries within them the image of God. And every believer doubly carries within them not only the image of God, but that recreation as a new being. And our relationships should reflect that. Now, if you really grasp that from this passage that we read, it's hard to imagine that a man who grasped that could ever see that as an excuse for abusing his wife and empowering himself. He missed the point, didn't he? Whatever submission means, whatever headship means in other passages, it cannot mean something which erases this point. Every human being is sacred and valuable, and that means our relationships are sacred and valuable and need to be treated as such. Number two, God is not partial. 
This is clear throughout this passage over and over and over. He says, treat each other the way the Lord does. Why? Because he is not partial. He does not honor the caste systems and class systems that we employ. He's not in favor of slavery. He recognizes it exists. But what he actually asked the master and slave to do is to treat each other as equals. He's not going to, he doesn't think it's there. Now, question is, is he saying the same thing about husbands and wives? In one sense, absolutely, yes. He's saying that women are equal and equivalent to husbands. Does that mean that the reason he even talks about submission is because there's limitations based upon the culture they lived in? And this is that moment where I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm not sure. Could be. <laughs> or it could be there are other passages which give me pause, which seem to say there's something deeper even about that submission that applies in every culture, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure yet. Maybe I never will be, but definitely not now. But what he is saying is that he is not partial. He is no respecter of persons, as James puts it later. He doesn't have favoritism. He doesn't say husbands are closer to me than wives. He doesn't say masters are better than slaves. He doesn't even say fathers are, are, are better than children. None of that. Everybody is, is valuable. Everybody's equal. He wants us to see the world eternally, partly so that we can see in our own interactions, we can get beyond the strange and destructive ways that our culture, whatever our culture is, because throughout history, it's always been this. There's not a moment in culture where this isn't true, that we come up with weird and strange ways to divide, categorize, and basically just justify our hatred and scorn of each other. And God says, that is not okay. So it's possible he's not endorsing a system of roles within marriage, but simply recognizing one exists and then giving the eternal way of limiting within these temporal limits. I don't know if that's what's happening here. It's also possible there is an importance to submission of wife to husband, and I don't know. But what I do know is that there's no favoritism or partiality, and that in our interactions, regardless of roles, pastors and congregants, employers and employees, doctors and patients, prisoners and guards, and men and women in black and white, we are all to be like God as much as we can be, and recognizing the inherent value in all people. And again, given that no culture has ever done that, it's always a struggle. Every individual has to wrestle with their own cultural blinders in that regard. Number three, order in community honors God. This is a tough one for a couple of reasons. We're so individualistic in our culture that we're a little bit allergic to the idea of placing the needs of the community ahead of the needs of the individual. That sounds kind of Borg-like to us, right? We're supposed to, you know, all become assimilated and there is no individuality, you know, or it sounds communistic or it sounds socialistic or it just sounds, it sounds like a cop-out. So we, we don't like that. We're a little allergic to the idea of looking to the good of the community above the good of the individual and, I, I, and, and our individuality is important to God. We've already said that in our first two points. But I do think that we have forgotten that there is benefit and there are times that you place the needs of the community above your needs, above your personal preferences. In fact, we all do that in families on some level, don't we? I mean, even things as simple as what restaurant are we going to go to, <laughs> right? When you get married, one of the first things you sort out is where you're going to go for holidays. And if somebody doesn't defer to the needs of the group and the family at that moment, you will never be able to decide where to go for holidays. <laughs> I think there is a truth here that order in community honors God. 
a community that functions with a community where people are looking out for each other and not just standing up just for their own preferences, it is honoring to God. And that requires some roles and some differentiation. Now, I understand that one of the cautions about this is that this looks like this could be taken too far in that somebody, say a pastor, could say to you, a congregant, hey, you need to do what I tell you to do because you need to place the community before yourself and that honors God. In other words, obey me and you honor God. But I want to say to you that in fact, when a pastor does that or anybody else, they're not taking this idea of community too far. They're not taking it far enough because what they're really doing is empowering themselves, not the community. Do you see that? So anytime you take this phrase to empower yourself, you're just missing the point, and that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But I am saying that within any community, within any group, within any structure which includes more than one person, <laughs> it is honoring to God when there is an order to it, when there isn't just chaos and everybody doing what they want to do. And that means inevitably someone defers to somebody. Now maybe, maybe, as some people would argue, the church structure and the family structure is that people should defer to each other. I, I, can, I can understand that argument, and I think it at least gets to the principle. Okay? But there is something about order in the community honors God. But I think to not go out of bounds with that, you do have to remember the point before that, that God is not partial. That doesn't mean that order in the community means some people are more important than others. That's not the point. But you also have to remember the next point, which is this. I think that God knows and has shown us, if we pay attention, that eternal perspective can lead to positive cultural changes. In other words, it's hard for us to say, here God is allowing us to be limited by the cultural limits we're in, not getting rid of slavery in the time of Paul, and, allow, and instead trying to teach them how to interact in that culture they're in. And, and, you know, why does God allow racism? And why did God allow, you know, women to be oppressed? And, and why, do, you know, why do these things happen? Why does God allow tyrants like uh, Putin? Why do these things happen? It's hard to see God limit himself. Doesn't God care? Well, I think the reality is that God understands that if the believers will be discipled and put themselves under the authority of Jesus, it will change these things. But the point is to be under the authority of Jesus, not simply ourselves trying to willy-nilly decide what we like and don't like about a particular culture. <laughs> and there are examples of this. And I, and I want to tell you that when it comes to slavery, that is precisely what happened in history. I, this is not the narrative you often hear. And I want to share it, but I want you to understand I'm not sharing it to defend America. America uh, engaged in a heinous act of slavery, which was heinous and wasn't better just because we happened to be engaged in it, okay? <laughs> what I'm about to say is sometimes used to defend America. That's not my point. But what I'm about to say is nonetheless historically accurate. And that's this. For a very long time, slavery was ubiquitous across the world. It is not uniquely a, a, a sin of America. It is a sin of America. It is not uniquely a sin of America. Slavery was everywhere, and it was the norm. There wasn't really very many cultures or people who thought that slavery was a big deal. It just meant you were stronger, you win, you get to have slaves. <laughs> It was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And it is pretty clear historically that what made this major cultural shift across the world to the point where today slavery exists, but it is repulsive. It is abhorred. It's not normal. People don't accept it. It is pretty clear that what changed it was the church. And you can go back and look. You know, there's a, there's a, a gentleman named William Wilberforce in London who was driven by the gospel, his desire for the gospel. And he 
was un, he was relentless about abolishing slavery in England. And, and just read about him. You'll see. It's all, he's all driven by the gospel. That's where it's all about for him. Because in his understanding of the gospel, all men are created equal. Nobody should be treated as property. And it's people like John Adams in the United States, again, severe abolitionists based upon their faith that led to the overturning of slavery in America. The fact that even at the beginning at the foundings, we were having arguments and the original draft of the Declaration of Independence pushed for freeing the slaves at that moment shows that there was already a, a turning within the, the people that were there that said this isn't, shouldn't be normal. Did we take too long? You can argue maybe we did. I mean, any, any long is too long. But, but people like John Adams, devout, devout abolitionist, who believed in fact, you don't have to believe this, but it shows you that where his mind was at, he believed that smallpox was in America as a judgment on us for slavery. That's what he believed. So the point is the church because if you think about what Paul said, you can draw a correct, direct line from what Paul said. If you're a master of a slave and you're told, treat your slaves the way you want to be treated, what's the ultimate end of that? Well, I don't want to be a slave. So I don't want my slave to be a slave. <laughs> I mean, you cannot take seriously the exhortations of Paul and not ultimately end up there. So even though God didn't say, end slavery, he said, Treat each other this way, and you'll discover slavery makes no sense. And I think that is the truth about what happens here. And I would say, whatever submitting means here, if men loved their wives as Christ loved the church, I, I just don't even know if we'd even be arguing about it. <laughs> I don't know if it'd matter. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe it wouldn't matter. And if women at least you know, loved their husbands, whatever you want to call it, because of their love for Christ. I just don't even know we'd, we'd ever even have a discussion about the word submission because we'd just be the natural outcome. <laughs> would be whatever it ought to be. By remaining eternal in our perspective as things as mundane as our interactions with each, with each other is the only way that we have a chance of moving beyond our own cultural blinders. Do you see that? If we allow culture to tell us what's right, see, what we do is we get very proud. We say we're smarter than the previous culture because we understand men and women are equal. We understand slavery's bad. Again, people before you did know that. And some of them knew that when the culture was telling them otherwise, which is much better than what we're doing. Right? I mean, we're just like, yeah, the culture says that. We believe it. Well, guess what? They were doing that too. Those who believed in slavery were just like, well, the culture says it. It must be true. It's those who actually believed it was wrong before the culture told them it was wrong that we should be looking to, those who lived in the midst of those bad cultures and still stood up for what's right are the people we should be amazed by. But what are your cultural blinders today? You know why that's an impossible question? Because they're blinders. <laughs> right? We, we know that there are, you can't simply say, I'm comfortable with my culture. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. Every generation thinks that because we're later in time, we're smarter. And C.S. Lewis says, every generation is wrong. <laughs> and the next generation knows it and thinks they're smarter. The only way we get around our cultural blinders is to stop trusting culture entirely and to follow Jesus and to let him share with us how we should interact with each other. And without having to say to us, slavery is wrong, he can teach us to interact with each other in such a way 
that it no longer makes sense. Let's wrap up with the, with the wrap-up. He goes on, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. As you think about sort of the complications that we went through, even of trying to figure out how do we apply these simple interactions with each other, your brain starts to hurt a little bit, maybe. And I think Paul then says, okay, take a deep breath and recognize you need to pray, you need to be vigilant, and you need to be grateful. And I really genuinely think in all our interactions with trying to understand how to make scripture line up with culture, trying to understand how to love each other in the ways that God would have us love each other in a culture which tells us conflicting and confusing messages because the culture doesn't know what's sacred, only God does. That the thing that will help us is if we will be devoted to prayer, be vigilant about looking for what God wants and be grateful. I really think resentment and bitterness just throws everything else askew. Okay. He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. I want you to understand that even here, Paul is looking at his position. He's a prisoner. What's his social class right now? It's pretty low. And he does not say, pray that I can get out of these chains. Now he could, I'm not saying that would be wrong, but I just want you to notice that he, that's not his concern. <laughs> His concern is, how do I love the people around me in the position I'm in? So you say, well, he didn't tell the slave to get away, but he also didn't tell himself to get away. He says, pray that I may pro proclaim it as clearly as I should. I love it. Do we, does any of us really doubt that Paul proclaims the gospel as often and as clearly as he should? We don't, but he asks for prayer because the truth is he needs help. Physically, emotionally, and mentally, he probably needs help at this point. Then he says this, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. So this is a general statement about which he's going to follow with specifics. And we'll go over this quickly. But he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. I love this. So he's been talking about the community. Then he talks about the nitty gritty of our relationships as believers with each other. That is, by the way, that's also relevant in all of this, even telling a slave how to react to his master. I'm not saying he wouldn't say the same thing, but he might not. It is important to recognize he's speaking to slaves. He believes their, their masters are believers. So he has an expectation of them as well and women with their husbands. I mean, there, there is, there's something in that, that Paul is expecting certain things will happen as a result that he may not be saying will magically happen where the other person isn't a believer. And it might be wrong to assume he was. Okay. But having said that now he's going to talk about outsiders and he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Just be smart about it. And well, doggone it, Paul, that's more thought, you know, just tell us what that means. He says, well, I'll give you a few specifics. Make the most of every opportunity. It's interesting, most of the time when I hear this verse taught or when I talk to congregants who read this verse, they tend to always assume it means preach the gospel as often as you can. Is that what it says? It just doesn't say that. Now, I understand that Paul just finished saying he wants to preach the gospel as often as he can, and that's something that's very important, but he's not saying that. If he wanted to say that, he would have said that. All he's saying is with outsiders, be wise and don't squander any opportunity. And I think what it comes down to is to love them. Make the most of every opportunity to do what is the loving thing for them, which might sometimes be sharing the gospel. But you know what? I have occasionally shared the gospel with a stranger and I think I made the worst of the opportunity. I mean, really, I think I made the least of the opportunity sometimes when I ran into somebody and they were asking me for money because they were lying on the street and had no food and I shared the gospel with them and I walk away and I got to ask myself, 
What did that do for them? Anything? First of all, are they going to receive the gospel because I spoke it to them and walked away? Unlikely. (laughs) I think making the most of every opportunity sometimes means share the gospel and sometimes it means keep your mouth shut. Sometimes making the most of an opportunity is to say nothing. (laughs) Because what you're about to say is going to make it bad. Right? I just think that's be wise and make the most of every opportunity are kind of similar statements. Make the most of every opportunity. Be diligent. Think about it. But he goes on and he says this. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I love, 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 love this sentence. Let your conversation be always full of grace. We know what grace is. We may not know a a significant definition, but we all know a sense of it. We know what God's grace feels like to us. We know what it is. It's his love. It's his acceptance. It's his warmth. It's It's his unmerited favor. It's the fact that he looks upon us with delight. It's the fact that when we're with him, we feel safe and comfortable. And Paul says, let your conversation always look like that. That's... That's making the most of every opportunity, right? And then he says, seasoned with salt. Do not turn that around. He's not saying be salty and then have a little bit of grace in there. (laughs) He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. And even here, I don't think with salt means abrasive. Salt is a good thing. Salt adds flavor and life. It, It adds a dash of interest. I think part of his point is, let your conversation be always full of grace doesn't just mean be sort of passively kind to everybody. You know what I mean? There's a passive kindness you can give, which just means you just aren't mean to people. But I think he's saying, be always full of grace and, and, and add some flavor to it. <laughs> you know, make it, make it even more appealing. Make it even more interesting to them. Find ways to, to add a dash of something that will attract them to the grace that you're sharing. And again, does this sound a little bit complicated, like it takes a lot of thought? Well, yeah, be wise with unbelievers, make the most of every opportunity. And to me, it circles right back to be devoted to prayer, be watchful, and be grateful. But ask yourself honestly, don't you wish you were surrounded by people whose conversation was always full of grace, seasoned with flavor? I mean, isn't that where you want to be? That's where I want to be. Why do we think a believer will be attracted to the church with anything else? Then he says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and he may encourage your hearts. Here's what's interesting. A couple of things. Number one, Tychicus is clearly not known by them. Paul has to introduce him. He has to say he's a dear brother. So he's not a Colossian. He's just someone Paul knows. But that means he's been traveling with Paul. And Paul, do you think Paul finds comfort in Tychicus? I do. So do you think it's easy for Paul to send him away to bless somebody else when he's in prison? I don't. I think this is an example of what? Paul placing the needs of the community above his own preferences. I think he's saying, I'm going to send you Tychicus because he's encouraging. He encourages me. And I think he'll encourage you. And so I'm going to send him to you, even though I will now be here without him. (laughs) great so he goes on he's coming with Onesimus our dear faithful and brother who is one of you this is so fascinating Paul does not let you in on a little secret here but if you read the book of Philemon you get let in on a little secret and that's that Onesimus is a runaway slave 
And what did Paul just say about Onesimus? A faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Equal. Just like you. Now, you can get into Philemon and read about where he sends Onesimus back to his master and asks them to get along. And you can wrestle with that. <laughs> but I want you to see that at this moment with the Colossians, he's, he's saying to them, Onesimus is a faithful and dear brother who is just one of us. That's it. He doesn't even say, he could have said, the slave that ran away who's a faith. It's like he doesn't, that's just not even a point here. He's not making that point. He says, they will tell you everything that is happening here. He says, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings. That's kind of funny. I get the sense that Paul's writing the letter and the guy next to him in the cell is like, who are you writing to? And Paul's like, oh, a church in Colossae. And the guy's like, oh, say hi. I mean, really, that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah. And Paul's like, okay, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings. Because it doesn't seem like they know who this guy is. I just love it. It's just, it's again, community. It's just such a weird sort of moment, right? You don't know him. He doesn't know you, but he's a Christian. He's a believer. You're believers. He says, hi. Uh, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, story about him. You can read in the book of Acts and in other passages. We won't get into it. Good story. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. This I only laugh at because if at this time in this place, if your name is Jesus, I imagine you also would go by a different name. <laughs> Just because that's a little confusing. Then he says, these are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. So a couple of things. Number one, most of his co-workers are not Jews because Paul is a Jew whose ministry is to the Gentiles. But by including the Jewish co-workers, the few that he has, and sending them to the Colossians, he's again showing there's no division between Gentiles and Jews. We work together. We labor together. Epaphras, who is one of you, if you think all the way back to Colossians 1, which you probably can't because that was a long time ago. But if you think all the way back to Colossians 1, he says Epaphras is the one who shared the gospel with them. Epaphras is the church planter they know. So that's why he says he's one of you. Unlike Tychicus and the others, this he means not just a believer, but a Colossian. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. I gather they were like, where is he? Why isn't he coming back to us? Is he on vacation? And I think Paul's just like, hey, he's working hard for all you guys. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, this is the only time we find out that Luke is in fact a doctor, but it does fit the other things we know about him as an educated Gentile. This is the man who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He's a constant companion of Paul. He hangs out with Paul. It's, it's logical that he is here at this moment. He says, my dear friend Luke and Demas send greetings. By the way, there's a movie called Paul the Apostle starring Jim Caviezel. And in that, Jim Caviezel doesn't play Paul. He plays Luke. It's really good if you just want to get a sense of context and place for all of this. And it is the only movie I've seen about Paul where Paul looks like a man who's been beaten and beaten and beaten to the point where he can't stand up straight anymore in his life. And it is striking. Uh, no pun intended. But it is, it is, it does, you kind of go, oh yeah, this was not comfortable for Paul. Um, anyway, it's a good movie. You want to watch it? I recommend it. I don't recommend a lot of movies, but there you go. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. 
lots of arguments and discussions around the world about whether Nympha is actually a woman and whether the church is actually in her house or whether Nympha is actually a man and the church is in his house and whether that means that she's leading a church and whether that means women are out of their place. And I don't know the answer to any of those questions. (laughs) Except that it does appear that all the new translations now say in her house because that seems to be right. (laughs) That the other arguments, and I, I won't go into detail, but it does seem to be likely that he's talking about her house. Now, it doesn't mean she's leading the church. It means she's hosting the church. So it doesn't, to me, say directly whether women can lead churches or not, but it is interesting that he does not mention who's leading the church in her house if she's not. I will only throw that in. Uh, It does remind us that most of the churches were meeting in houses of wealthy people. That's what they did at this time. So she's probably wealthy. We know that. Let's see. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. I did mention Paul doesn't write every letter. The applications don't fit, but sometimes they do. And sometimes within a certain area, he'll have them pass the letters around. They're called circular letters. But he doesn't take the letter that he writes to the Corinthians and encourage that to be read at Laodicea because the Corinthians had very specific problems. But for Laodicea and Colossae, which are very close together, he's like, yeah, you guys should read this together. Did I say Colossae? Are you laughing at me? Yeah, I know. I added an extra L in there. Uh, Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. This is one of those things I have marked as a question when I get to heaven because this sounds like a whole story. I'm like, what is the ministry he's not completing? I want to know more about this. I'm like, no fair, Paul. Didn't you know that I would be reading this someday? Which, of course, I don't think he did. Uh, But he says, sell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. I'm like, what is is he doing? Is he being lazy? What's happening? What is this ministry he's not doing? I just, for some reason, I want to know so much about this. But I'll just have to wait and ask him when I get to heaven. And then Paul says this. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is significant and relevant because two things. One, not everybody can write anyway. So what typically happens is you have scribes who write. And even in prison, when Paul writes some of his other letters, it appears that he dictates it to somebody who then writes it. I think Paul's point here is this is a very personal letter. This one is intended that he's kind of saying to them, I made extra effort for you guys because I've never been there. Remember, he's actually never been to Colossae. But he wants them to know he cares about them. So I think he's saying, I wrote this in my own hand. And again, when you watch that movie about Paul and you see how physically hard it is for him to do anything, you'll probably be amazed by that. You'll be like, that couldn't have been easy, even just writing that letter. He says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. I love the kind of dual ending there. On the one hand, he's not above saying, hey, don't forget me in prison and that it's hard. I mean, this is kind of a human thing to me. Remember my chains. But then he closes with grace to you. He turns it around and it's back to them. It's about them. So he's both human and vulnerable and recognizing that it's about them. It doesn't end with him. And that's Colossians. And that takes us through it. And I think if I were to, you know, conclude um, with, with one kind of point from all this, it would be this. If we learn how to think eternally, and regard the world in eternal ways, and recognize that we are new, new, new natures, new creations, that we've been saved into a new kingdom, and this is who we are, that it gives meaning to all of the mundane aspects of our life. It makes them sacred, and it makes them divine, 
and it makes them vastly important. That's what I would say. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.